this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, Not A Surf have a, a new record out. Did you know that? I do know that. It came out a little while ago. It's called You Know Who You Are, which is both accusatory and also reassuring, I guess. Like, you know who you are, or you know who you are. Like, This is true. I don't know which way they're going with that. They, um, it, you know what's funny is the cover kind of looks like Let Go, and you could say the same thing about that. It could be Let Go, or it could be Let Go. Damn. I guess so. So to help us briefly review this record, uh, this is our, our roundtable of record reviews. Uh, we have a, a guest joining us. He is a suggestor of albums, and he is a Patreon subscriber. Stephen, where are you? What what state in the union are you located in? Uh, currently, I am in San Diego, but I bounce between uh, the Detroit area and here. I kind of have a dual citizenship thing going on. Oh, interesting. Wow. Once you got to San Diego, why would you ever go back to Detroit? <laughs> yeah. For music. That is the only reason. My band oh. is from the Detroit area, so okay. that keeps me having ties there. And what's your band's name? Uh, it's called Hollow Earth. I assume there's Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and websites to, for people to go check that out? Oh, yeah. All that stuff. Excellent. So you're here to talk to us about the, we were just discussing, the eighth official Not A Surf record, seventh if you don't count the covers record called you know who you are why'd you pick this record um i'm a huge fan of the band and i think that the stigma of potentially having almost been dubbed a, a one-hit wonder from the 90s um i've always just found it like the more music they put out the more compelling i find it that the mark that they left uh from the 90s was that song popular which you know I mean, if you listen to the album that it came from, it's it's kind of its own quirky track. And I know you guys have talked on the show a lot about certain bands from the 90s that have like had these strange songs that they've been come to know to be known for when maybe it's not always that representative of, you know, the music at large that they were making. Right. And with Not A Surf, I feel like the more music they put out and the more that they mature as a band, like the more compelling that I find everything to be. And it's, and it's so far from the mark that they left in the nineties. So I don't know. I just, I'm always intrigued by, by what they're doing. So with regards to this record, what did you like about this particular record? What worked for you? So apparently they took on a, um, a fourth member. Um, yep. Doug Gilliard. Yeah. From, uh, help me out here. Got it by voices. Guided by Voices, yeah, most notably anyway. Yeah. I know he's been involved in other stuff. A lot of other bands, um, yeah. But I think his presence uh, on the album, I know he's been a guest musician in the past, um, but you know he's an actual member this time around. I believe he'll be touring with them, and uh, I feel like he's made his mark all over the record, and I thought that was uh, was very interesting, hearing uh, you know a fourth member and, and somebody who is just focusing on coloring and texturizing the songs. He has a lot of like twanginess 
to to his guitar playing, and I think that it works really well, especially in a song like Animal, where um, you see, like, I know that, I'm assuming it's the singer, but somewhere in the band there's definitely a heavy uh, Dylan influence, and at least, and if not, just admiration for Dylan. I can't say that I share that love, but, uh, you know, hearing that uh, come to life a little bit more with somebody else at the helm um, was pretty cool. That worked really well for me. I know that... Uh, I feel like his presence on a song near the end of the record called Gold Sounds, where they kind of get a little psychedelic and super like washy, um, that worked really well for me. Um, I did read a review that kind of said that that they thought they thought that was the only failure of the album, and and I couldn't disagree more with that. I thought that song really carried itself and stands out to to show the band taking uh, taking chances. There's also horns in one yeah, of the out tracks. of the dark. I was gonna mention that track. I like that one. Yeah, that was that was pretty new. I don't know that uh, that it necessarily um, needed the horns, but I kind of like the idea of them taking a chance and doing something they haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Thought it worked well. I agree, and, and I, I don't know if your opinion on this, Jay, but I kind of felt with this record, the, when they took more chances is when I was enjoying them more because I feel like some of the stuff where they didn't take chances, I could have mixed this in with the previous two or three records, it wasn't as distinct as when they did try the little bit of a psychedelic or did try a little bit of a heavier track or did try a little bit of horns or something like that. What about you, Jay? Yeah, I, I think this is a band that found their sound, you know, whatever, maybe let go era. Mm-hmm. And then very much I've, what I've heard since then is, you know, within that range. So yeah, I think there songs on here where, it very much sounds like not a surf. It's okay. Like, that's great. Want to hear more material by the band. That's what I expected to sound like. Sometimes I found myself thinking of other songs that were maybe better they had previously done. So some of the experimentation or extension was welcome and at least shows the band, you know, continuing to take steps forward and go in different places, which is which was my biggest question going into this is, you know, where where's this band going? You know, they've, they've been around quite a while, consistently releasing records every, what, three to five years. So at this point in their career, you know, where's this all leading to? Mm-hmm. How's the band evolving? Steven, where would you place this in their overall discography? Is this get placed high in the middle? Uh, this is probably this is probably in the middle. As as a fan who's kind of worn out every release, this is um, a welcome addition for me because um, I'll I'll probably listen the hell out of this thing for the year. And so, yeah, but, you know, like if I was to try to convert somebody who was maybe skeptical of the band and, you know, give them a couple albums, this this probably wouldn't be one of them. Um, I think that Leco and uh, actually their last release, The Stars Are Indifferent to Astronomy, would be much stronger um, cases for the band. But I, I think if, if you're familiar with the material and you like what they do, then I think it, it holds its own. But, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, – I don't think they pushed – their sonic boundary enough for this to, you know, to truly have, uh, I don't know, made a, you know, a notable rift, if you right. will. All right. Well, that's Stephen's thoughts on You Know Who You Are, not a surf's record that was released just about a month ago. And uh, thanks for coming on, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
Jay, the Colts have a new record out, which is always something that we're interested in. They've been touring yes. for it for a while now. I'm always excited when they put a new record out. Yes. It's called Hidden City. It's their 10th overall release. It's their fifth, I believe, that they've done with Bob Rock as the producer. It's the first one since the 1994 self-titled album not to have Chris Wise on bass. Uh, Jane's Addiction bassist Chris Cheney played bass on the uh, record. So to help us out, give us some positives and possibly some negatives about this record coming back to the show previous guest mr joe Royland, joy uh joy joe welcome back <laughs> thank you guys it is a joy to have you thank you it's a joy to be it's a joy to be back i think there's a there's a, uh, a, a song on the self-titled cult album called joy so that is right yeah yeah there we go Tying it all together. Better shows, too. I I, I quite enjoyed that show. That one was fun because Jay and I have obsessed over that record uh, for probably over a decade. So to be able to talk about it and find other people who who enjoy such a weird record, we were uh, quite pleased. So what did you think about this new cult record, Hidden City, Joe? What's your thoughts on it? I quite like it. Um, I I, I think it, it kind of right where Weapon of Choice left off, uh, stylistically as well as sound-wise. And according to Ian Asbury, it's the final part of a trilogy that began with 2007's Born With This. I kind of don't hear that as much, Hmm. uh, but I think it it solidly picks up where the last record left off. And uh, I was actually really surprised that Bob Rock was the producer on it, because I didn't read the liner notes before I listened to it. First time I spun it, I'm like, oh, I wonder who produces. this. So I was Bob Rock, and I'm like, wow, because it doesn't sound like his normal production with the band. Usually it's all glossed up, reverb, drenched arena rock sounding stuff like Sonic Temple and things like that. But this is much more stripped back and dry sounding as opposed to that. So it, it kind of follows where Weapon of Choice left off. And they kind of co-produced that album with uh, Chris Goss from Masters of Reality, as well as uh, Bob Rock, I believe, for the last record. So. Yeah, I can hear where Weapon of Choice is the natural like precedent or whatever connection to that record. I was not a fan of Born to This. Jay, do you like that record? Uh, I don't. I found it to be a bit of a letdown after uh, Beyond Good and Evil. Yeah, which I really like. I did like Weapon of Choice. Um, I do like this record. I, I I'll say on the production side, it does remind me at times of the production that. Um, Bob Rock did on the self-titled record from what is that ninety four? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There is some of that element to it in the, in the way that it's kind of it's stripped down at times, but it's still very uh, precise. It, you know, it, it's not overproduced, but it's very um, together. You know, I wouldn't say it's raw. It's just it's got a room feel. Um, it doesn't have a ton of overdubs. But the the parts that are there are are on, you know, and they're they're dead on and locked in. It kind of has that, I guess, as raw as Bob Rocket's production. <laughs> Was there anything that uh, turned you off about this record, Joe? No, not really at all. Um, like I said, I like the whole thing. Uh, I could, if you want more, I could go more on what I liked about it. Yeah, go ahead. 
Okay. Well, kind of one of the things I really liked about it is it really harkens back to like all the different eras of the band's history. Whether that was intentional or not, I don't know. But you know, you you can listen to different tracks on the album. You get uh, here's a track like uh, the opening track, "Dark Energy," with kind of like the tribal drums and the Gulf, the uh, Gothic Southwestern feel to it. It kind of brings back to mind the the Dreamtime album. And there, there are other songs that are similar, like you hear something like Dance the Night Away with its echoey textures, kind of sounds like it could have come right off of Love, as does Birds of Paradise. And then there are tracks like Hinterland, which is the first single, which sounds like it could have easily been on the 94 self-titled record. I heard those similarities, too. I definitely heard for the first time in a long time some, um, some sounds that, that, that reminded me of Love. You know, that's a record that, it feels like very much a moment in time for them. And, and I don't feel like they've really often revisited that sound, but I think on this record, they genuinely have some moments where they do. And, and I, that was appreciated um, in terms of, that's just an era of the band that I kind of miss. Um, I've loved all their areas, but that's just one that I haven't heard anything sound like that in a long time. All right, Joe, here's the tough part. If you're going to place this album in their discography of 10 records, where are you putting this? Well, first of all, what would be your, your number one cult record? Oh, God, that's tough. That's tough. Um, that's hard to say. I mean, probably for me, it would be Electric, uh, but very closely followed by Love. And then uh, I would probably even go to the 94 album, you know? Okay. That's third favorite. So this would probably be like fourth or fifth from the top. So kind of middle of the road. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's high, fair. A high middle of the road, you know, because I, I, for me, it's a tough thing because I love the cult so much that it's hard for me to, to say, oh, this is number one, this is number two. Right. I, I pretty much like everything they've done, so it's a little harder for me to scale them on numbers. But I would consider it near the top. So something's got to be at the end. What's at the end for you? What's at the end? What uh, ceremony? Ah, uh, don't don't help him. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's kind of a toss up of uh, born into this and and ceremony. Although both of those albums have their moments, but the, with yeah. born into this, it felt like they were trying too hard to to try to relive the Sonic Temple era, and ceremony was just pretty much trying to redo Sonic Temple. You could just tell that there wasn't a lot of passion behind it. But there are tracks yeah. like Earth Mofo on that album I I absolutely love. Yeah. There's a couple on that record that when I revisit that uh, hold up much better than I remember them. Overall, it's not a great record. It's probably my 9 or 10 as well, but uh, there are definitely some songs on there that are much better now than they were when, when they came out to me. Right, and they, they have a lot of B-side stuff too or unreleased tracks. Oh, yeah. I, I have everything by the cults. I have like the 10 CD ultra, pure cult box that they came out years and years before that. I have a, an import CD single box set that the cult put out with like all picture disc CD singles, you know, you name it. I've, I've probably got it. So that's how big a fan of them I am. Well, Joe, thank you for joining us for this uh, rapid review. Uh, people can find you on uh, Facebook, for example, yep, at Facebook. Uh, sit and spin with Joe. And also at, at, uh, on YouTube, it's sit and spin with Joe and Twitter as well. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, guys.
So that was a song off of Suede's album Night Thoughts that was released, I guess, about a month and a half or two months ago. To talk about that record, joining me, because Jay, Jay stepped out of the review booth for a, a couple minutes. <laughs> and uh, I'll be flying solo on this one. Joining me from Cleveland, Ohio, Annie Zaleski. Hi, Annie. Hello. So, we're talking about Suede, who put out their eighth record. Um, It's called, or sorry, seventh record. It's called Night Thoughts. And um, first one since the 2013 album Blood Sports. What did you think of it overall? What what worked for you and what, what didn't work for you? You know, I really liked it. And I mean, obviously I really liked their their I guess comeback record Blood Sports, which came mm-hmm. out in 2013, which was a little bit poppier, a little bit more compact. It seemed like they were trying to come back and say, "Hey, yeah, remember us? We can write really good glam pop songs." This one is sort of like now that now that they're kind of back and touring and everyone like is happy that Suede's back. They're like, we're just going to push things. We're going to push the envelope a little bit. So this is like this grandiose record with like orchestras and dramatic arrangements. And I loved it. Like, I think it was polarizing to some fans because it's not necessarily, you know, there's a couple singles here and there, like single-like songs. But it's definitely a little bit more of a challenging listen. But I love that. You know, I mean, I could listen to Brett Anderson sing all day. And mm-hmm. his vocals just sound wonderful on it. I I think that the kind of, you know, majestic orchestration and arrangements really suit the band. They, it always kind of did. Um, but now that they're, you know, they've been around for a couple more decades, like they've almost grown into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, this album kind of, uh, to me, drew a closer comparison to like Dogman Star um, with regards to its, like you said, the grandiose sort of approach as opposed to like head music or, or coming up, which had those, I guess, more cheeky, you know, trash and, and electricity and, and those sorts of songs. This one, like a song like Outsiders to me is more like the beautiful ones in terms of its like approach to the single, um, which I, I liked overall. Was there anything that you didn't care for on this record. I thought some of, there was a little bit of navel gazing on a few tracks in terms of, <laughs> I don't know. Did you, did you find that annoying at all? You know, I, I kind of feel like if you're listening to a suede record, you're, that's, that sort of comes with the territory, you know? So I, you know, I, right. I tend to, I tend to appreciate that. I tend to, I tend to find that charming rather than irritating. You know, it's, it could, it's a, it could be a little bit long. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of a commitment to sit down and listen to. And I think because of, the way it's arranged, everything, you know, it's, it, it all kind of is part and parcel. It's all like one big long thing. You can't just like, Oh, I'm going to queue up this one song and I'm going to kind of skip around. It's like, you really have to sit down and listen to it. And that's only just challenging sometimes because it's, you know, you need to carve out time to do that. But yeah, no, I thought it was, you know, overall, I thought it was really, really solid. So in their overall discography, where would you place this? Do you think this is up at the top, more middle of the road? I mean, I definitely actually think this is a little bit more toward the top, um, just because, I mean, right after, I mean, Dogman Star was such a high watermark, and then kind of everything after that was sort of diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, A New Morning, I don't think that even, I bought that in London. I don't even think that came out in America. Um, I don't no. even know if I've actually ever listened to that. <laughs> so I mean, like, and I, I like head music more than most. 
but I mean, I think that this probably stands in they're probably the upper echelon of their catalog. Like, you know, if there's seven albums, I would say about, you know, three or four, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I, I'd put this up there also. I think it, it pairs well with Dogman Star and the, the debut record and, and coming up are sort of the opposite bookends of that album so it definitely works within the context of those those early records and I, and I like you i have some songs off i had music that i like there's just some there's some weak moments on that album then that is the entire a new morning album is, is a one giant weak moment but yeah <laughs> um let's go to the uh the second record that uh you were going to be listening to for us and that is grant lee phillips and his Eighth album, I got it right this time, The Narrows. Kept to walk until my feet were bloody, left everything we knew. When they took us across the Mississippi, nothing that I could do. But Okay, so we heard a little bit of Grant Lee Phillips from the Narrows. Um, people would probably know him because he was in the band Grant Lee Buffalo in the '90s, who put out I think four records. I think I and I actually I think owned two of those. And this, he was also the troubadour on Gilmore Girls, which oh, actually he's gotten a lot of fans because of that as well, which is funny. Wow, I did not know that. Yes. So he is, if you, if you, if you kind of look like he, he appeared sporadically throughout the kind of the original run of the series, strumming his guitar, there's actually like a whole episode centered on the troubadour getting like pushed out by other troubadours. It's great because he's kind of, he's a very, he's a very humorous person as well. He's a very good actor. Mm-hmm. So he really, he's playing a part and like he would play like cover songs, but he would do Grant Lee Buffalo songs, but he really kind of played his role as kind of the quirky troubadour. And just like he played it up really well. I've never seen any Gilmore Girls, but now I'm going to have to go check that out. It's awesome. Okay. So this is his, uh, he's been pretty consistent in the 2000s releasing solo records starting in 2000, between 2000 and 2016. He's got eight records. So it's basically one like every other year, essentially. What, what was your take on the Narrows? What worked for you and what didn't work? I mean, honestly, I out of all of the solo records, I think at this point, I think I have most of them. I actually almost like this one more than any of them. I mean, what really stood out to me is the recording. Mm-hmm. I mean, he moved to Nashville in the last few years, and so he basically he recorded it at I believe it was Dan Arabach's studio in Nashville. Yeah, so he recorded the record at Dan Arabach's Easy Eye Studio, and the record just has a really warm, intimate sound. You listen to it, and it's 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 and it was recorded live as well. The songs, uh, vocals and all. So you kind of like you know it's a cliche to say, but you feel like you're in the same room as everyone listening to them record it. Um, and then you know he recorded with a like a couple of other musicians. So it's basically the trio format, which Grantley Buffalo was a trio as well. And I think he functions as a songwriter, as a performer. He's I think comfortable in that configuration. Um, but it's just like it's just this really it's like. You know, his genre, it's hard to pigeonhole him because he's sort right. of 
folk, kind of like country leaning, a little bit rock and roll. But this is just, and that's kind of fits into that. Like there's just some really lovely twangy stuff. There's some alt country leaning stuff. There's some more folk stuff. But it's just a really moving record with really well crafted, well recorded songs. I think the the there needs to be a new genre just called like Midwestern country rock or something like that because I feel like he fits into this thing where if you get into your car in the Midwest and you have to drive like seven hours, this is like the kind of album you want on. Like absolutely, it's, it's not too yeah. fast, it's not too slow. It's like the right kind of like driving through Middle America album. I would agree with that, and you know what's what's nice about it is that you're right. Like it's not, uh, you know, so many bands fall into this trap where their songs either kind of sound kind of samey or just kind of boring. And this every song on this record had a little bit of a um, little bit of different flourishes or a little bit just something that different that really kind of caught your ear and made you want to keep listening. Yeah, even though there's a similarity because it's him, and you're like you're saying there's it's the three piece format. He doesn't tend to repeat the same vibe from song to song. So there's subtle little instrumental changes or subtle changes in the way he's phrasing things from song to song. And I mean, he's a guy that's, you know, re- written and recorded not just for all the albums that he's done as Grantley Buffalo or solo, but he's also worked with other artists as a songwriter. So he's, you can tell that he's cognizant of, I'm not going to repeat the same sort of idea or, or style from track to track, even those, you know, I think how many tracks are on this record, like 13 or 14, Mm -hmm. 13. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that could easily, you could start to get repetitive on a record like that, but he keeps it really varied and it's, it, it's an enjoyable record from that standpoint. So we've, we've mentioned he has a lot of material. Where are you placing that in his discography up at the top? Yeah, I would definitely place that up at the top. I mean, I think probably at least in the top two. Oh wow! I I, I love this record. I love this record, <laughs> and I have, like I said, I have everything he's done. I mean, I had, you know, we had Grantly a Grantly Buffalo song in my wedding as like part of the ceremony. So I've been a huge fan of his work for like twenty five years now. Excellent, Wayne. Thanks for uh, stopping by and doing the uh, rapid reviews with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Jay, that is a little bit of Voivod from their new EP, well, new, relatively speaking, came out in February of this year, Post Society. I don't know what that means, Jay. It means after society? <laughs> right. So like a Walking Dead situation? Something That's what like the that. album cover looks like. Yeah. Uh, they've put out a number of releases going back to 1984, uh, more than I can count quite honestly, between live albums, compilations, EPs, regular albums, singles. I don't know. There might be some double or triple albums released in Canadian versions that uh, we don't know about. But that's what it, that's what the uh, Wikipedia says. To help us dig into this band that you and I are not as familiar with as we should be, we have uh, one of our 
Patreon subscribers, Mr. Scott Russell Hallgram is here to enlighten us on Voivod and this new EP. Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Post Society, can you give us some, some of your brief uh, thoughts on this EP that uh, came out in February? Yeah, um, you know, and, and I think it might be, if, if we want to talk a, just a, a, a touch on the history of the band, you yep. know, um, they've had a ton of lineups and, as you mentioned, a ton of releases. And they started off as a thrash band, you know, and then they moved into um, more of a progressive band. Um, and then and then they even had a period where they were um, doing a genre that I dubbed uber metal because it, it's just um, all-encompassing and, and overpowering. Um, so their lineup is back to kind of where they were in the progressive phase of that runs, you know, roughly from like 89 to 95. And... So somewhat unsurprisingly, uh, this EP uh, feels a lot more like those releases. So um, like it goes from, from Angel Rat to, um, to The Outer Limits, those would, those would be um, kind of where it fits stylistically. Okay. It's, it's more progressive than, than anything, but it's, it's very fast and intricate and heavy. Those are the uh, album covers I'm, I'm familiar with. It seems like they would always be the band that would run the half page at the end of a metal magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd always notice it because the album covers were just so different and bizarre. I remember the Angel Rat one for sure. Yeah, I, I've always loved their cover art, and I think they, they continue the streak with, with Post Society. Yeah. You mentioned that this fits in with that era of the band. In terms of st- stuff like songwriting and and... Uh, performance, that sort of stuff. Is this on par with that, uh, with that era in terms of the actual the songwriting quality um, and the uh, the playing? Or you, because you mentioned there's different, you know, I guess lineup changes. Is are we talking about the same lineup as that time, or is that uh, a different lineup? It's pretty similar. So, and it's it's pretty complex. So I'm gonna get stuff stuff wrong. And if you have you know, a, a, a Voivod super fan in your audience, you know, they're going to have stuff to correct me on, which is great. Um, so, but just to kind of put it out there, and I'm not speaking from ultimate authority, but um, the one band member who's been consistent throughout time is their um, is their drummer. And before that, it was their guitarist. Oh, and they all have crazy names, right? Like, so the drummer's name is uh, uh, Away, and the guitarist uh, who had been in the band forever was Piggy. So Piggy's passed away, um, and now Chewy is the guitarist. Um, <laughs> the other current, yeah, the other current members are Snake is the singer. He's also the original singer, um, and then uh, Rocky on bass. So um, bass has been the one that's that's uh, fluctuated around the most. I don't know if you know Jason Newstead was in the band for like seven or eight years. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. When was that? This, well, this it he was, was in Flotsam and Jetsam, too. It's, oh, yeah, you're right. It was like 2002 to 2009, roughly. You know, it was yeah. right after, um, what's the... Metallica is the band he was in. The, the, right. Well, yeah. And then, <laughs> but the... the, 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 the <laughs> what is that? What is that metal band? That little rock and roll band you might have heard from, from the West Coast. But, you know, his his time in that was kind of famous for being, you know, he was low man on the totem pole. And, right. 
And I think that came out in that DVD, which is the name of that was what I was trying to remember. Oh, some kind of monster. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And uh, so it was It was basically after that kind of mess hit that he was like, forget this, I'm going to go to Poivod. Gotcha. Um, was those, right. What are those records like, just for reference? You know, and that is, a, unbelievably, that is a phase I entirely missed out on. Yeah. Um, in my history of the band is I, I listened to them up through Negatron, which I think spent like three weeks as my favorite album of all time in 1996 which then meant I had to go buy their entire album and I bought their first album and it was kind of weak on it. So then I just, I just stopped listening to it because at that time there was just, there was just so much to listen to but I, and I haven't gone back and caught up yet. I, I gave this a couple listens. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm anxious to go back and, and listen to it some more and also go back and listen to that era that you mentioned, uh, sort of the 91 to 96 or whatever, because um, a song like Fall... I hear hints of the band Ghost, which I love, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if if I'm going to hear more of that, and if potentially this is a point of reference for them. I, it's just something about like the the style of riffs, and it's progressive, but it's not like dream theater progressive. It's still kind of raw and you know definitely metal, but not overly drop tuny. You know, mm-hmm. um, drop, you know, drop, uh, or, you know, what am I thinking of? Drop D kind of riffing. Um, and the vocal I find interesting. Like it's different. I, I don't maybe I'm trying to think of like who, who he sounds like and I can't really come up with anybody. So I'm kind of, uh, I think this is a band I tried to listen to a long time ago just to, cause I kept seeing their name all the time. Like I said, in, in the ads and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't get it at the time and now I, you know that I've listened to more metal since, since then and, and sort of broadened my, uh, <laughs> my vocabulary in terms of music. It makes sense to me now. So I'm, I'm curious to go back and check it out. As far as like being progressive, but not, you know, drop D I think that's pretty accurate. You know, I think they've done, um, a couple of Pink Floyd covers, um, from back in the day, they've probably done more than that, but, um, off the top of my head. And so like, um, and like early Pink Floyd, like astronomy domine and, and stuff like that, like well before dark side. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're doing some very like, you know, jazz chord tunings and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, I picked up on that, that what I think what makes it so different is those chords are just so not expected. Right. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of Caven. Like I can kind of see hmm, some yeah. similarities with that band. Just uh, just the chord choices and just sonically what's going on. So Scott, in their overall discography, I know it's vast. What what section would you put this in? Would this be at the top end of the discography, sort of the middle of the road, or the bottom end? Um, well. Probably at the bottom end of the top end. Like, you know, it's only it's only five tracks, so it's hard to to really compare it to albums that are strong, you know, for fifty minutes. Sure. But um and two of these were released on a seven inch earlier. One of these is a Hawkwind cover and it's um and I've never and it was during the Lemmy years. I don't know if its inclusion here is because of his passing away, like two months before this was released or not, but um, you know, I would put it behind, you know, the outer limits. 
uh, and nothing and Negatron and, and Nothing Face, which are which are the the top three for me. But it's it's probably ahead of Angel Red. I mean, I guess like it, it, um, you know, to do a dig me out review of Angel Red, I might even come up with a better EP rating. And then if you you know took the five strongest off of that, you might end up with something like Post Society. Okay, and it's it's definitely better than their their thrash period, which is not something for like their first three or four albums. I it just I couldn't embrace it. It was, it, it it was it was much more raw than what you're hearing, and and a little too raw. Okay. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if people want to find you, you're on Twitter, talking about stuff. Talking about stuff, Shalgrim. Shalgrim. All right. Thanks, Scott. Oh, thanks, guys. Talk to you later. That was a little bit from the 10th Weezer album. Who would have thought Weezer would make it to 10 records? But they did. It's called Weezer, or also known as the White Album. It's their, I think it's their fourth or fifth eponymous album. That's how you say that, eponymous, right? Self-titled. Epiponymous. Yeah, hippopotamus (laughs) album. Um, It's their uh, first since uh, 2014's Everything Will Be All Right. And to help us do a rapid review of Weezer's The White Album, which feels a little funny to say, but we're going to call it that, uh, joining us from the Rocket Fuel podcast and punktastic frequent roundtabler, Mr. Jeff Takis. Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Weezer, 10 albums. Who would have yep. thought it, huh? I know. Thought this band was done after two, but they back. Eight more. Eight more. Eight more. With varying um, levels of success and, and interest from people. But uh, this one has been referred to as a return to form. I'm not sure which form that is, right. but that's the that's the verbiage I've heard. What did you think about this? What's uh, what's your opinion on the White Album? Well, it's funny because I kind of read all of that hype um, prior to the album being released. And... Um, I didn't um, like listen to any of the singles before the record came out. I kind of steer away from doing that, and so I got to listen to the White Album like fresh, like without um, any kind of bias um, when I first got it. And um, at, to start, I I didn't really love it um, after the first you know listen or two. Um, I don't know if some of that bias crept in, or I was just expecting or hoping something else. But then um, I kept listening to it, and like other Weezer records, if you take out any preconceived notion that you have about Weezer, and you listen to an album on the strength of its own merits, it, like, like I did with this one, it's a good record, and I've been able to enjoy it much more since that. I actually thought their previous record, Everything Will Be Alright in the End, was a bit more of a, you know, quote-unquote classic Weezer record, um, and this one seems to be more of a of a slightly different direction, in my opinion, but again, um, after I, and I think that's what threw me off in the beginning, was that it, it sounded to me like a different direction with, you know, kind of, you know, more of a, 
of a Beach Boys kind of a vibe to the through the throughout the record. But I can say now that after I've kind of put that preconceived stuff out of my head and listened to it, um, I really I really enjoy it. Were there particular songs, or, or I know that um, Thank God for Girls got a lot of airplay, like on Sirius uh, XMU, and I, I've heard I think one other single. I think maybe Do You Want to Get High was the other when they were pushing as a single. Um, both of those stood out for me as being, I, I understand why they picked them as the singles because they stood out as the stronger songs. Were there any particular songs that you thought stood out? Um, there are a few, um, and for different reasons. Um, I like those singles that you mentioned. Um, I like Summer Elaine and Drunk Dory, which is track seven of the record quite a bit. I like Girl, We Got a Good Thing, um, track four. That's kind of like a, to me, like just kind of like a sweet, simple pop song, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and for a completely different reason, um, I like track nine of the record, Jacked Up. You know, River singing in falsetto quite a bit on that on that tune. And um, I just um, I like I like that uh, the song and how it's um, different from some of the others on the record. Was there anything that uh, maybe you didn't love about the record? You know, it was a grower for me. So that, um, you know, sometimes when you listen to a record, you, you want to love it right out, out of the gate. But um, that didn't happen here um, for me. But again, I I liked it after listening to it, you know, several times. Um, I don't really have a negative um, thing to say about it. Um, I'm not like gushing over it either. Um, I guess that would kind of be where I sit on it um, is that. I like it. If I have enough time to only listen to one Weezer record, this would not be my choice. But again, for what it's worth, like it's a great summer record. Totally get, you know, the cover art with, uh, you know, with them being on a beach uh, by a lifeguard stand. And I, I enjoy it. Jay, do you have any thoughts about this record? I've sampled it a little bit. I, I got to be honest. I kind of I, I stopped following this band. I, I like the early stuff. I, I don't dislike some of the stuff in the middle, but it just seemed like. I don't know. They, I didn't see a progression as much as I would hope to have seen with them. Um, so I just started to lose lose interest when the albums would come out. So it's taking me a while to get into this one. Um, the one track that stood out uh, was Do You Want to Get High? And it sounds vaguely like another song. Am I crazy? Can you guys hmm. place maybe what the other Weezer song that this sounds? I, I tried to quickly go through the catalog, and I can't quite find the, the one I'm looking for. But it's a... It's definitely very reminiscent to me of the, of the first two albums. Yeah, and that was their, that was their goal with with yeah. this record. From hearing some of the words of of the producer Jake Sinclair, um, that that was what his goal was with producing this record was to kind of return them to their '90s greatness, so to speak. Yeah, they sort of turned into I don't know, almost a parody themselves. Like everything got way over the top. With the guitars were like way too crunchy and the songs were just a just too a little too goofy and and i felt like there was a couple records there when they were just i don't know like a a cartoon version of of weezer this feels a little bit more honest yeah yeah i agree with that i think at this point they're good for a couple of really good songs per album but there's a lot of stuff that's like you don't love it but you don't hate it except for maybe some stuff on ratitude um Uh, where would you place this in their discography, Jeff? At the top, in the middle, towards the bottom? Yeah, I would put it in the upper half for sure. Um, probably closer to the middle. Um, you know, obviously the blue record and Pinkerton, um, 
I'm a I'm a blue record guy. Um, would would put that at number one of their discography every time. Um, Pinkerton two. I really love their record Maladroit. That yeah. never. I don't think that ever gets enough love in their discography. Mm-hmm. So I probably put that at three. Um, this one's probably around five. I would think five or six, maybe. I haven't done the exact list, but I would put it in the in the middle. And again, I I really again thinking about Weezer kind of returning to their '90s sound. I thought they kind of did that with with the last record, um, with everything will be all right in the end. But um, again, this is like a different a different vibe on this record, and and I like it. So, and I I like this band. Like I I have always followed this band and and have never really given up on them, so to speak. And I really like. Uh, this record again when I put those preconceived notions out of my head. Gotcha. All right, Jeff, thanks for uh, reviewing Weezer with us. Yeah. And we're going to move on to the next record that was uh, that you picked, which was Bob Mold's Patch the Sky. Let's listen to some of that. That was a track off of Patch the Sky. Bob Molds, I guess it's his uh, third in the uh, Narducci Wooster Worcester uh, trilogy, yep. you could say. It's yep. his 12th overall solo album. And uh, that does not even counting the stuff with Husker Du and, and Sugar, which is a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, right. But this is his 12th solo record, and it's his um, third with this particular band came out in uh, March a few months back. So what were your thoughts on Patch the Sky, Jeff? Yeah, I um I really like this record. Um like you kind of said this is like the third record of what's been touted as as Mold's kind of, you know, renaissance or resurgence. All three of them have been really great records and and Patch the Sky is right with those. Um just great, you know, guitar work um from bob and always you know good meaningful lyrical content and just great tight songs and um i i really like patch this guy um very much in terms of you know the difficult thing with with bob mold is you have all these different phases of his career it um is this surpassing his original solo i mean he had some really good solo records but i kind of feel like maybe these these three albums is surpassing all the stuff the workbook and black sheets of rain and those you know those the self-titled record and all in the 90s yeah um is that fair to say i mean it seems like he's just completely reinvigorated with these records i think i think so i think that's pretty fair to say i mean obviously black sheets of rain and workbook are really great records and it's hard to you know, because they're in different phases of his, you know, musical career, it's almost hard to judge them against each other. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, these, this, these, these three records are just so good. And I just, I mean, I remember when the first one of the three came out, Silver Age, and it just like knocked me in the face. It was so great. And the, the one after that, Beauty and Ruin, and then now Patch the Sky, um, just continually making great records. Um, so it, yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement. 
Jay, the thing that I think amazes me, and I don't know if you're amazed by this as well, is that he's even though he's not that he has a formula, but he means playing pretty straightforward rock songs. He seems to be able to reinvent what he's doing, you know, unique ways. He's not repeating the same ideas. It's it sounds like Bob Mould, but mm-hmm. he's always got new songwriting ideas and new melodies and new chord progressions that sound familiar yet you don't think oh this sounds like something off of sugar you feel the same way uh i did yeah definitely i think the songwriting keeps to it keeps if i don't want to say evolving it's just kind of like he shifts it like a little bit here and there enough to make it fresh every time Mm -hmm. um i do think the production of this though reminded me of sugar as opposed to something like silver age which i think is a little more raw sounding or just a little beefier this has some of that like really sharp kind of production that the sugar records have um kind of glassy did you guys a little more compressed yeah it's just all a little bit thinner sounding um Mm -hmm. did you guys pick up on that yeah i i did pick up on that and i and i agree with that quite a bit especially when comparing it to silver age um it's interesting i read an, an interview with bob that he did i don't know a month or so ago um and he said kind of drawing correlations between patch the sky and other works that he's done. Um, he, he made a correlation to this record and to sugar's file under easy listening, um, okay. which is, you know, right in line with what you just said, Jay. I mean, and I, and I think that's a, uh, it, after you think about it, like that's a really good correlation, um, you know, totally different songs, different songwriting, but you know, in the, in the production and in some of the other work on the record, it, it is, um, you know, it does have a correlation to file under easy listening, which is my favorite sugar record, I should say. All right, Jeff, here's the tough part. Where are you putting this in his solo discography? He's got 12 solo records. This is at the top, in the middle, towards the bottom. I know it's not towards the bottom. Right. It's Yeah, it's definitely in the upper third for sure. Um, you know, again, I loved Silver Age. I would probably say that's my favorite Um you know, uh, when you think about, for me, it's kind of like the, these five records that are all kind of, you know, kind of tied with each other in Silver Age, Beauty and Ruin, Patch the Sky, Workbook, and Black Sheets of Rain. So um, I know that's kind of a lame answer, but I, I would put it in the upper upper third uh, for sure. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks for uh, stopping by and doing these uh, quick reviews with us. And uh, we want to remind everybody to go to uh, your check out your podcast, Rocket Fuel, and you can find Jeff on Twitter at Rocket uh, underscore Fuel. Rocket underscore. We can't forget the underscore. Right. And uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, my pleasure, man. It was really fun. That's a little bit of David Bowie, Jay. Who? Oh, yeah. The gentleman who we lost this year in the in the great purge of rock musicians of 2016. Yeah. It's been a trying year across the board, and uh, this was one of the most difficult ones for uh, the world to accept. 
mm-hmm. uh, David Bowie's passing two days after the release of the album we're going to talk about, Black Star. This was released back in January. We've had a lot of time to digest this record, so to help us uh, give our one of our rapid reviews, joining us from the Windy City, Mr. Jim Copany, otherwise known as Tank Boy on the interwebs. Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We're, we're good. You know, we a lot of these records we've done, they just came out uh, maybe a few weeks ago or a, or a month ago. Mm-hmm. This is probably the one that's been around the longest, and we've had the most time to sit with it and contemplate it and and realizing how much was in it that was much more than the, what the surface appeared when you first listened to it. And then the recent discovery of the album artwork that changes in the sunlight is a just another interesting twist on right. this on this record. So now that you've had a long time with this record, uh, what do you what have you enjoyed about it? Has your perception changed at all since it was released in January? Have, have anything you know? Sometimes you live with an album for a while, certain songs start to grow on you, and other ones you know start to fade. Uh, what's been your impression of this record? So the funny thing is, I was looking back at uh, when I reviewed this album, and it, that was the day it came out. And luckily, unlike most other releases recently, I did have some time to sit with it and let it sink in. So I felt like I had a really a good idea of the concept of the album. And I kind of wrapped it up about the, the fact that even at 69, he was still a musical searcher five decades into his career, and that he was still being very adventurous. And then, of course, two days later, you realize he was still being adventurous, but I don't know if he was searching so much as trying to make a final statement. Like a lot about this album feels very deliberate. One of the things is that it sort of falls in two halves. Like you have the first half that's sort of the creepy, sort of the free jazz, sort of the just doing a lot of poking and exploring and using uh, like the Donnie Miscaskin quartet mm-hmm. as, as a way to, to give voice to what was going on inside of his head. And then, like, around halfway through the album, maybe, and and keep in mind, this is a very short album. It's only four minutes long and has seven tracks. So halfway is, you know, song five. And song five or six, things start to kind of hit a bridge. You have, like, the absolute um, craziness of Sewer, the season of the crime, and then Girl Who Loves Me sort of comes after that, and it's got a lot of language used in, like, Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange, and you start to feel like you're, you're hitting very sort of, like, Bowie giving a nod to this, his 70s self because that was sort of what he was into. And then all of a sudden it slips into like a classic sounding Bowie song where it's just kind of like mildly in tempo, lots of him crooning. Um, and then kind of sinks into this final track. Whereas if Black Star was a, the, the opening track of Black Star was a very strong calling to arms about what the album was going to be like because it starts off creepy and sort of jazzy before kind of dropping into this weird disco beat. The very last album or the very last song is almost like a spiritual successor to his uh, Black Tie, White Noise album from the mm-hmm. early 90s. And it's even with its kind of cheesy harmonica, there's which kind of pops up here, here and there, uh, it's probably one of the loveliest songs in the album. And it, it it's almost the most peaceful one. It feels like he's sort of slipping away comfortably as opposed to, you know, trying to, to claw on and grab on and stay. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, Black Tie because uh, Jay and I reviewed that record when this record was coming out, we wanted to review one of his nineties albums and we put it up to a vote and people pick that record. And there are some parallels, not just in color scheme, but in terms of 
the sounds on some of this record. This is, like you said, the beginning of this record is very sparse sounding and it's very adventurous and dark. Um, the Black Tide doesn't go that way. It's a much more produced and dancey record. But it starts, this record starts to kind of get into that area. So it almost feels, feels like in some ways like a spiritual connection to, to that record. Jay, did and you I, get that? Well, certainly the last track, I think. If you hadn't got it to that point, it definitely felt connected there. I felt like it was a very much like a, a concise retrospective of like not only where he was now, where he was at that time, but maybe even the latter half of his career. You know, the mm-hmm. albums he's been doing for the last ten or fifteen or so years, it seemed to be picking up on a lot of those themes and kind of reimagining them, maybe in some different ways, but you know, trying to make a final statement, I think, of where he probably seemed to be at that time, you know, that that what was maybe what the final year of his life. I think the other interesting thing to keep in mind is that um, the other connection that I keep seeing between this and Black Tie White Noise is they both came at very, very pivotal events in Bowie's existence. Black Tie White Noise was written primarily around the time of the L.A. riots, and it was also written at the time he was marrying Amon. Right. So that drove a lot of, like, the jubilance of the album, and this one, of course... He is, is being written right before he, he leaves us. Yeah, that's that is an interesting uh, you know through line between those two records as well. The the important markers in his life. Was there anything about this record that when you went back and revisited it that uh, maybe didn't work as well for you, or because it's such a short record, it's such a concise statement? Um, is it hard to find anything? I still think. Um, it's a. I, I don't find any of the songs uninteresting. I actually find all the songs satisfying. If I had any fault with anything, it would maybe be see, Sue or In a Season of a Crime. And that is only because I feel like that was the beginning of him trying to figure out how to use the jazz idea that he wanted to carry through on the album. And the idea was he didn't want to make a free jazz album. He wanted to use great instrumentalists to help him bring his vision of different and disparate genres of music together into fruition. So I feel like that's that's almost like the the original building block of the album, kind of like the let's let's test this out on paper, guys, and see where we go. Mm-hmm. And then everything that kind of like spreads around that in different directions uh, sees that as, as it sees that as its seed. All right, so here's the tough thing: twenty six albums in his career, studio albums. Where do you put this? You know that is a really tough one. I think it's a it, it's an especially tough one because we. Still, it, when you place it up against earlier albums, of course, it's almost like placing it up against a different artist to a certain extent. Right. But I think, I think in retrospect, we're going to find this to be one of the near, near the top of the catalog, near the top of the um, the Bowie. Ooh. So top ten, you're thinking? If not top ten, just outside of top ten. Okay, I could see that. I mean, obviously, the '70s albums are are all legendary. I don't think there's anything outside of that decade that, as a whole album, would beat this. So I think there's a lot of strong songs on various albums in the '80s and '90s, but nothing that's going to completely overwhelm this record, considering how concise and what a unique collection of songs it is. So, right. It, I mean, it's a deliberate piece of art which all of his albums were to a certain extent, but in some of them he was playing with different tropes and themes. With this one, he sort of obviously had a very, very solid vision and through line for where this was going to go. All right. Well, that is our discussion of Bowie's Black Star. 
Let's give a little listen to the Dandy Warhols. And that was a little bit from the Dandy Warhols. Gosh, how many albums has it been now? Ninth? That's their ninth studio album. Who thought this band was going to make it out of the 90s? Not me. <laughs> then yeah. So are the Brian's Jonestown Massacre, both those bands from the Dig documentary. And I don't think anybody expected that band to still be around. Thought that all nope. That uh, Anton would be like in an insane asylum by now. But uh, no, he's out there. Still making music. But we're, we're talking about the Dandy Warhols. Their ninth studio album called Distortland or Distortland. I don't know, however you're, wherever you're from in the country, you're going to say it a little bit differently. Distortland. <laughs> First of all, have any, have any of you guys stayed up with the Dandy Warhols entire catalog? Because I have not. I know probably about five of the nine albums. Jim, are you up on all the records? I am. I actually um, got turned on to them very early in their career, right Right when they signed to Capital, because a friend of mine was working A and R for Capital. Okay. So I kind of got into them from the get go, and have actually, I, I admit, been a fan of theirs ever since then, and also am kind of surprised that they're still around and still, I think, artistically viable. I think they have a big following in the UK. Am I wrong? Because I, th- I think that they play big festivals over there. They probably aren't playing in the United States. Right. Well, I think last year they played Riot Fest, so that wasn't too bad. And they have played Lollapalooza in the past. And they do, they have, at least in recent years, toured pretty consistently around the state. So, Okay. So what'd you think of the new album? So I was doing some reading up on this, and uh, one of the earliest press releases I got from this was that uh, Distortland was recorded first in Courtney Taylor Taylor's basement. And he's the, the lead singer, guitarist, sort of like central guru of the band. Mm-hmm. They did most of the recordings on a on cassette. I think it was maybe a four track. Um, some of those reports vary because I've also seen pictures of a Pro Tools rig down there. So who knows? Um, and then after he kind of came up with all the different songs, uh, he sort of then brought it to the band and they put a bunch of finishing touches on it in the studio. And I think that is sort of telling because the album has a very half baked feel to it. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of mid tempo groovers, a lot of like you know groovy guitar or like chunky guitar here or there. Um, there's two very throwaway tracks that are very very Dandy Warhols when they get in their jokey manner, like Pope Reverend Jim, which you know kind of sounds like their old old song Lou Weed, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then all the girls in London. Whenever Taylor or Courtney hits that sort of like raspy yelpy voice, you can kind of feel like he's just throwing off the number. But then again, I'm I'm not so positive that's not the intention of the album because after a couple of very very um, elaborately thought out albums, this this one feels sort of like they're just goofing around a little, like a palate cleanser. Like they were like, all right, let's just write a bunch of silly songs and get them out of the way, and then we'll get back to writing the thirteen song, fourteen yeah. song big big idea records. And maybe that's it. It's been four years since their last album, uh, This Machine, and like. I said they've been touring a lot, so I kind of get the impression that they feel like they can just do whatever they feel like doing, and 
again, maybe it's, maybe that's just kind of freeing for them. I think the end result is not a, a, a particularly strong album um, as far as like a strong artistic statement, but it is an enjoyable album. Well, I think that anybody coming to this record who's only familiar with them from a couple of the singles that they might have heard in the 90s, which are very Stonesy influenced, you know, Not If You're the Last Junkie on Earth and, and um, Bohemian Like You, those mm-hmm. kinds of songs you're not going to get that here. Like you said, these are very like groove oriented kind of mid tempo, um, you know, three and a half minute long kind of, you know, they're, I, they sound like a lot of ideas, but there's not a lot of, it's, they're very, like, they're kind of sound like they're floating there and they're not like as fully formed as maybe you would like. That was the issue I kind of had with them and, and kind of had a hard time like wrapping my head around, what they were trying to accomplish. I, I feel like a lot of bands are going to shorter albums because of the vinyl thing. And, you know, this is only a 33 minute long record. So that might have had something to do with the shorter length. I'm not sure. Or maybe they just were, they just didn't have as much material as they had on, on previous records, but it definitely sounded like a band that had some ideas, but didn't maybe flesh them out or, or this is what they fleshed out and were like, We'll just put it out and see what happens. But it definitely doesn't. It definitely doesn't sound as as I don't know engaged as previous records. What you're describing, I'm I'm picturing like uh, you know a kid at school makes artwork and then brings it home. He's like, I made this. <laughs> Here, this is what I did today. I made I made this. I oh, that's wonderful. We'll put it on the fridge. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, well, great, honey. Good job. Yeah, it's just when I look at like the scores, every one of them is like three out of five, three out of five, two and a half out of five, three out of five. Like every review is pretty much like, eh, it's fine, but it's not great. And that's kind of the way I, I felt listening to this. So, I mean, I know this band from the singles and the uh, we reviewed a record uh, back a couple seasons ago, I think. Listen to this very briefly. It sounds, uh, I think you guys touched on it, like, a bunch of different ideas. I don't really get the, what the concept is or what the direction is. Is that pretty typical though of their records? I mean, I'm trying to, I I don't know if they, they're so concept driven, but their songs do tend to be pretty. I don't know. They, they, they do, they do frequently walk that line between being groove oriented and well thought out. Like for instance, on this song uh, or in this album, the you are killing me, which I think actually ended up being the single. It works. I think it's one of the songs that works the best because it's 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 a tighter, it's more tightly written, it's a little better orchestrated, and it's actually the one song on the album outside of maybe the closing track that has sort of an honest lyric. You know, he's kind of talking about a relationship falling apart and the person who's aggrieved realizing that they, they it's too late for them to make changes. And I, I think that's kind of like an older adult song. So it's it's when they when they hit that vein, I think it's when they are most successful. When they can kind of put together the 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 laid back pop with sort of like the honest emotion, mm-hmm. then, then 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 the band tends to deliver a little more. All right, here's the tough one. Here's the tough call. Is this uh, top three? Is this four through six, or is this seven through nine in the discography? So I'll say this with a caveat. 
being that I've actually really, really enjoyed all but one of their albums. <laughs> so I'm going to have to say this is the, the bottom, just above that one, but it's still closer to the rest of the catalog. What's on the bottom? For me, Auditorium or Warlords of Mars, that's when they kind of, they got their own studio um, in their, I, I can't remember if it was a communal space at the time or just a, a practice space that they all hung out at all the time. But imagine the American version of of Oasis's Be Here Now, only not without loud guitars, but with the same sort of aimlessness because you have way too much free time and way too many drugs floating around. But that, that's, got that, that's got that song Smoke It on it. Which I is a <laughs> a favorite of yours, a favorite of mine. Smoke it, but the rest. Ah. <laughs> I don't know. Just, <laughs> you just cruise around and listen to that. I do, man. In my Camaro, your wife's like, "Turn that off!" <laughs> no way, no way, you man. Were... You don't understand. You gotta smoke it. You have a child in the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Jim, thank you for joining us for these rapid reviews. Uh, people should go check out your work at the Chicagoist and at Tank Boy Tank Boy Tank Boy <laughs> Prime dot blogspot dot com. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, I got that. And of course, on the Twitter at uh, Tank Boy and that sort of thing. So, thanks yeah, for coming back on. All right, thanks, guys. That's a little bit off of a lot of bit, which is a weird way of saying that's from Dream Theater's uh, 13th studio album, The Astonishing, which is 130 minutes, Jay. It is 34 tracks. Mm, Yeah. It is described as uh, it's set in a dystopian future United States that follows the Ravenskill rebel militia in their efforts to defy the great northern empire of America of the Americas by using the magical power of music. That's the Wikipedia explanation. To help us dive into this rapid review of Dream Theaters, the astonishing released in January of this year, welcome back to the program, Mr. Eric Grubbs. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. I feel like when we talk about this, we must talk about it in hushed tones of the dystopian future that it is no. the Ravens kill rebel militia. Yeah. This is a big record. Yeah. This is longer than Interstellar, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what's your, you know, you picked this one. What was your uh, thought behind picking this one to start off? First of all, I'm a huge Dream Theater fan. Uh, there was a time in my life since the early 90s that I was not a Dream Theater fan. Okay. This was a little bit after Awake, but right before Scenes from a Memory. That period, I, I just kind of lost touch with what Dream Theater was playing and what they were into. I was much more in, I got really more into punk rock. And my thought was, is that if I can't play it on my own means, then I shouldn't be listening to it. And I thought that, Dream Theater and any kind of progressive rock 
it was just something that wasn't worth my time. It didn't, it didn't really connect with me. But uh, a few years ago, I just decided on a whim to give a listen to a Dream Theater song called I Walk Beside You from their Octavarium album. And that is a four-minute pop rock song that's in 4-4, and it, it's an amazing song. And I realized that Dream Theater had been doing a lot of great stuff in my years of listening to Jimmy Eat World and Cursive and Face to Face. So uh, I, I really got back into Dream Theater. And I also got to preface that Dream Theater has a song that is called Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence, and it is over 40 minutes in length. It's a multi-part uh, per uh, song and it's uh, the, it takes up the entire second disc of the album of the same name and i have listened to the live version of that with an, uh, an orchestral uh, arrangement i've listened to that multiple times i think it's that's one of their masterpieces so when i heard about the astonishing months before it came out earlier this year i was excited i i, I thought it was very cool that Dream Theater has ever since Mike Portnoy left the band three records ago now, they've made some pretty different records, but all works as Dream Theater. I think Mike Mangini is a phenomenal drummer. Uh, I like the idea that, uh, and, and I say this as, as a big fan of what Dream Theater has been doing up, in, up until this record, is that when after Mike Mangini joined, they stopped sounding like intentionally like Muse on a few songs. Like th there are songs on Octavarium and Systematic Chaos, as well as Black Clouds and Silver Linings that are so intentionally trying to be like Muse. It's like, Come on, guys, really? Uh, or it's sounding like it being a little too obvious with their influences. And uh, so with Dramatic Turn of Events, which I think is one of Dream Theater's best records, uh, and that was the first record that they did with Mike Mangini, uh, as well as the self-titled record, has it ends on this amazing 22-minute orchestrated epic. Uh, going into The Astonishing, I was very excited about it. Um, unfortunately, I would say that The Astonishing... It's really, it's a really tough record to get through. I mean, it's over two hours in length. They're performing the whole record live, which I think is admirable. Uh, it's them doing a full-on rock opera. It's mm -hmm. a little, it's different than a concept record, which they have done before with scenes from a memory, uh, part two, you know, Metropolis part two. Uh, that, that's one of my favorite dream theater records, but the astonishing is very much in uh, trying it. <laughs> To put it basic, in a basic way, it was like they were trying to make Tommy, but instead they made Kilroy was here. Wah, wah, wah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and this is coming from a guy that was excited about this. And sure. the first song that was released from it, The Gift of Music, I thought was great. I, I was talking with a, a fellow Prague fan, fellow big Dream Theater fan. I was talking to him at, of all things, a Coed and Cambria show recently. And he when we were both describing the astonishing as like Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, New Year's Eve party, and a family reunion. It's a little hard to take that all in in one sitting. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I would say is a, a big difficulty in just exploring this record is that it all kind of sounds the same. James Labrie sings in different ways on different songs because he takes on different characters. But for the most part, it's kind of the same stuff over and over and over again. It, it's, it's not as imaginative uh, musically as uh, Dream Theater has been known for. I mean, they still have like crazy rhythms. I mean, M Mike Mangini just 
fits in so well with the, what the band is doing now. But unfortunately, it, it's just this is this is the first miss of uh, Dream Theater since Jordan Rudis joined the band. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just keep in mind. This is coming from a Dream Theater fan. I still support them, and I look forward to the album they do next. But as far as me wanting to fly across the country to go see them perform this record, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to pass. Jay, your thoughts yeah. briefly? Uh, I'm a fan as well. I actually have the from the first album, When Dreams and Day, When Dream and Day Unite, with the original singer Charlie Dominici, and uh, I really was in the Images and Words and Awake and started to fall off with falling into infinity. And I think kind of like you, I just musically was in such a different place through really up until I think Octavarium was the time at which I kind of plugged back in. So there's at least a five to seven year span there where I didn't track the band that closely. So I I, I can't, I've listened to this record a few times. There's so much to take in. Um, It does sound uh, very similar Whereas that was one of the great things about this band that I really kind of fell for in the first place is that they could be so dramatically different uh, from song to song and even from part to part. I mean, that was whole, the the acrobatics of that is, is what makes them so appealing. This sounds to me like they're in a little bit of a rut um, in terms of it's almost getting predictable. So and, and just the the rock opera concept is just so difficult to pull off without getting uh embarrassing so yeah I, I there were some things on here that that sounded pretty good but um nothing really grabbed me like a dream theater record should there should be some moments as you go through it where you're just you know your mind's blown and you're like I, you know you, you can't wait to go back and re-listen to it um whether it be a part or a song so far this record hasn't hasn't done that and it it, it could very well just be the length i mean if you think about what this band does to have that much material on one release is it's ridiculous unwise it's pretty <laughs> all right eric so you got to put this in there uh overall discography is this going to be at the top doesn't sound like it is this more of a middle of the road record for them or are you putting this towards the bottom it's towards the bottom i okay. would put it with when Dream and Day Unite, great songs, but bad production. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And Charlie Dominici is a great singer, but he just wasn't right for Dream Theater. So that to me is like, that's the least essential. I would say, and like, you know, I'm also going to, I'm not the biggest fan of Awake or, or Really Falling into Infinity. Uh, it, it, it's like they were, they were doing stuff that later on they did much better. But I'm definitely going to put it towards the bottom. I mean, when it comes down to the essential Dream Theater records, I would put it at images and words, scenes from a memory, um, the score, live CD, uh, and Octavarium, as well as a dramatic turn of events. So that's where I stand on that. All right. Well, that's Eric's review of The Astonishing by Dream Theater. Let's go in a little bit different direction. Let's check out some face-to-face. Surprise every time we buy the light. Why don't we pursue the truth even when it's hard to do it?
And that was a song off of the ninth album, Protection, by Face to Face. A band that uh, I don't think I would check out if it wasn't for Eric. Because Yay! I didn't, uh, I wasn't really into them. I heard the name, but never checked out any of the records in the 90s. So this is their uh, first since 2013, Three Chords and a Half Truth. Mm-hmm. Is this a half good record or a full good record? Eric, fill us in. I would say it is a strong 10 songs with one total stinker. <laughs> oh. And I've been a face-to-face fan since the mid-90s. I remember seeing them on MTV News, The Weekend Rock. They're talking about them playing a 5 o'clock matinee show at CBGB's. And they seem like a very smart pop-punk band. And uh, I got Big Choice on a whim, then circled back to their earlier stuff as well as uh, Don't Turn Away, classic debut album on Fat Records, which was originally out on Doctor Strange, but then reissued on Fat Rec. And I have been a big fan of Face to Face ever since. Uh, I have seen them now a total of nine times. Um, And that is the most I have ever seen of any national touring band. And uh, this record is a return to Fat Records. Um, after they've been on numerous labels, there was at one point they were on AM Records, they were on Beyond Records, the same record label that put out Motley Cruise Records. Well, uh, yeah. And um, so, I mean, they, they were also on Vagrant for a while, but now they're back on Fat Records. The record is uh, Protection was produced by Bill Stevenson of The Descendants and Black Flag, also played in the Lemonheads for a while. And this, I would say, is their what what Death Magnetic was for Metallica. The protection is what it is for Face to Face. As in, you recognize a lot of the things that you've always liked about Face to Face, but it's played in a different. It's played in a way that seems really fresh, and the songs are just incredibly catchy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are quite a few times where I'm like, hmm, this sounds like a riff. Kind of like what you heard on Face to Face's self-titled album, their third proper album. Uh, but I, I've enjoyed it. The one song I always have to skip is uh, song seven, 1459, which, you know, it, it, it's about uh, I think it's about like Kim Kardashian, that kind of stuff. I was like, what the hell is this? Oh, it's like the play <laughs> on the 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all those years after Sugar Ray made a record called 1459. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was a big hit record for them, mind you. But face to face, it it it, rem- it was like feelings that I haven't felt about face to face in a long time came back in listening to this record. I mean, like right away. I was not a fan of their last two records. I mean, I, I'll go see face to face any time if I can go. Uh, but their last two records, uh, laugh now, laugh later, seem pretty half baked. Uh, three chords and a half truth was them trying to be like an English punk rock band. But up, up until like they broke up a number of years ago, I was a big fan of every record that they put out, including ignorance is bliss, which was a, a pretty sharp turn away from what they were known for. But they put out a phenomenal record, a record that I think is still one of their best, but it's, it's different than their pop punk leanings. It's a much darker and, heavier record for them. Uh, But with protection, I just found this to be a very strong quote unquote return to form, but it doesn't sound like they're doing fan service. It it just, it made a lot of sense for them to work with Bill Stevenson 
uh, on this record, and I think it's it shows in how good it sounds. It does sound good. All the hooks are crystal clear, and the vocals sound good, and the guitars sound good. And Jay, did you have stuff to add? Yeah, I agree with everything that you guys said. I think the, this this is a band. There's some like Bad Religion would be another one for me where every time I hear them, I'm like, oh, I really like this, but for whatever reason, I just don't think to listen to it. Um, I don't know why that is. Um, it's kind of the, that whole, I think, pop punk genre. Um, one thing that I, th- I know is, is difficult for me is just, um, which I think defines this genre in a lot of ways, is just that punk kind of drum, I would say almost like rut. <laughs> it's kind of what defines it as punk, the boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop on every song, where it yeah. starts to make me lose track of what song I'm on. But, uh, you know, uh, I think it's... Uh, it definitely sounds fresh. Like I wouldn't have, if you would have played this for me, other than the production, I wouldn't have been able to say if this was, you know, one of their more um, sort of earlier, sort of better known releases or something more recent. I mean, it sounds like a, a fresh, vital band for sure. So in their overall discography, Eric, they have nine mm-hmm. albums. Are you putting as top three, middle three, bottom three? I would put it between top and middle. Okay. Um, don't turn away. Big choice. Uh, self-titled. Ignorance is bliss. All really awesome stuff. But then when you get into middle tier stuff, I would consider uh, reactionary, and then I'd put protection, and then I would then go into how to ruin everything, and the bottom half would be uh, definitely laugh now, laugh later, as well as. Um, uh, a three chords and a half truth. I know Jeff Takis from uh, Rocket Fuel Podcast is listening to this, and he's probably just going to be like, "Eric, come on, give those records another chance." But I'm like, because <laughs> hey, I you know I I think he's he's definitely he knows what he's talking about, and he's a huge face to face fan. But for me, it's like that's where I got to place him. All right, Eric, we want to thank you for coming on and doing these rap reviews with yes, us. Sir. People should go to your website, themeparkexperience.blogspot.com. They can mm-hmm. find your writings. They can link to your podcast, Do You Know Who You Are, uh, mm-hmm. and all the other things that you were involved with, places that you were guesting, Yeah, like our show, Yeah, probably very <laughs> soon. So, all right. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Jay, that is a little bit of uh, Soul Asylum from their new record. came out in March. It's their 11th overall. It's called Change of Fortune. Jay, let's find out if this record changes Soul Asylum's fortunes. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) You tried. I tried. Uh, To help us review this record and another one from... Chicago returning guest, Mr. Andy Dare of the Andy Dare Show. Welcome hey, back, Jay. Andy. Hey, Tim. Always hey. a pleasure. Always is. So 
you chose Silas oh, Silasolums. Soul Asylums. <laughs> <laughs> New album Change of Fortune. Uh what'd you like about this record and what worked for you? One of the only things I liked about the record is the album cover. It's like a monkey looking at a smartphone <laughs> in the middle of a lake. And I thought that was really clever. It kind of sums up 2016 in a nutshell. The music, not so much. It's Dave Perner's first album as the sole survivor of mm-hmm. Soul Asylum. And uh, it's really scattershot for me. It's pretty slick sounding from a guitar and band standpoint. I, I, I think that's what I heard. It doesn't have a lot of personality. Like you, If you were to take Dave Perner off of it, Probably could make it be anybody. I think there's maybe one or two songs that work. I actually like the last track, Cool. Kind of reminded me of something that would fit alongside of their cover of Sexual Healing. But a lot of this record, yeah, you're right. It's just, uh, it's kind of a downer. Jay, what did you did you have any thoughts on it? Uh, I'm with you guys. I think it, it didn't sound like Soul Asylum for the most part. Uh, I think like a song like Supersonic... I, the start opening track, I I could sort of get on board if the rest of the record was like that, but as it progresses, the the production's all wrong. The songs are just all over the place. Make it real, track six. <laughs> what in the world? Like, it, I felt like I was like listening to Boba Flex or something. Like it's some <laughs> some sort of it's auto tuned out, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just bizarre. Like, and not in a good way. Not in a, like it, it's. I don't know if he's going to write material like that. Like he needs to know what he should use for soul asylum and what he should maybe give to somebody else or try to shop because it's just the material, the writing is all over the place. And then the production is just, I don't know. It's just not right for a soul asylum record. It just sounds too, it sounds almost like too digital. I don't know if the drums are real. Like I think they are, but it's just, it's all too pristine and clinical sounding. That's the interesting thing. It's Michael Bland playing drums, who was the drummer in the new power generation in the nineties for Prince. Like you've got a great drummer. Yeah. And the performance is great. It just sounds too, I don't know, like too big rock, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought Cole was embarrassing. You did? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think I love their cover of Sexual Healing, but that's them covering somebody else's material. Like if they would have wrote that song themselves, it doesn't work nearly as well for me. And I, I don't know. I just found that song really uncomfortable. Yeah, I caught them live <laughs> last summer with the Meat Puppets and uh, we weren't aware of the drummer situation. So this enormous dude goes and sets up the kit. He's chewing a straw. He has to be at least 350, maybe even 400 pounds. And uh, I go to my friend. I go, yeah, this is their drummer. Just joking, thinking who would set up their own drum set at the House of Blues in Chicago. And he stayed on the kit, and it's Michael Bland. And, you know, he's, I'm sure he's a good with Prince, but it really doesn't fit the Soul Asylum sound. It didn't fit the even the early material. He had trouble keeping up with their more, you know, uh, loud stuff from their early, you know, the early part of their career. But I broke out their debut album, and that stuff is amazing. Their 80s output mm-hmm. is great, and yep. it's it's punk rock. It's Bob Mould on production on a lot of it, and I would definitely recommend going back and and checking out those first three or four albums. Even I even went back and listened to Grave Dancers Union, and it's I found, strong. I yeah. found so much stuff I liked on that record, and it's just this is kind of missing that personality, and it's it's a shame. 
Um, so if you're going to put this in their uh, overall discography of 11 albums, this is not going towards the top. Is this more middle of the road or is this the bottom? I would say towards the bottom. I would say Candy from a Stranger from 1998 is their worst. It's completely bland. Um, I really liked the album before that, Let Your Dim Light Shine with Butch Vig on production. Mm-hmm. That was scattershot, but it had songs to back up the set, the scattershotness of it all. This one, it's pretty towards the bottom for me. All right. Well, hopefully our next record was more pleasing on your ears. We're going to talk about the new Radiohead record. From the new Radiohead album, it's appropriate that uh, the last album we're reviewing for our Rapid Review episode is the most recent release of all the albums. It's the new Radiohead. It's called A Moon-Shaped Pool. It's their ninth overall album. Their first since, what, 2011? Yeah. Yeah. The King of Limbs. It was the last record from Tom and Johnny and Ed and the boys. So, Andy, what would you think of A Moon-Shaped Pool? Well, I think it's really cool of a, just a whole thing of this year releasing an album. We knew that something was coming from the band. Um, then they did a really cool thing of removing their social media presence. That just you know gathered more and more hype as that weekend went on. Then I believe they took a few days, released a video. Then they announced they were releasing the album on Sunday. And I got the name of the album that morning. And then I waited two hours and it's on my Apple Music, on my phone, no charge. It's just there streaming. And that's a really weird way of releasing an album. But it's also pretty cool for me. I will go back and I'll buy the vinyl once it comes out. But yeah, just an interesting way of releasing music to the public, and mm-hmm. I think the music stands up for itself. There's million textures fighting, competing for space. You got, you know, organic or- orchestrations meet, uh, you know, the synthesizers and the analog uh, technology that they're known for, and I, I think it's a nice melding of the two. Now, Jay, I don't know you as being the biggest Radiohead fan <laughs> in the world. I love the Ben Zanoki computer. Okay. And Pablo Honey. And Pablo Honey. And I, I'm actually a really big fan of Kid A. I know it's a very uh, divisive record for Radiohead fans. It kinda it's kinda where people get split off. Um, but I, I, I that to me is a uh, a landmark record. And I, I've tried to stay up with him. I, I was I could not wrap my head around the King of Limbs. So Jay, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this record or if you have any anything you want um. to it was um, more familiar than I thought it would be. Uh, it kind of reminded me of some of the was reminded me of the quieter moments on Oki Computer. Um, I haven't followed the band since today. It just it's just not my. I, I guess to keep it short, I just don't get the band anymore. But I was I found myself uh, drawn into at least a couple tracks here. I thought the the textures are. 
mostly seem like instrumentation, like performance, mm-hmm. um, which is good. Like when you have musicians, this, uh, this talented, uh, that's what I want to hear. I think it sounds like some of the like rhythm stuff and a lot of looping and those sorts of things has been pushed aside a bit. And it's more, uh, I'm going to guess, uh, Johnny Greenwood, it seems like on this record. So, I don't know that I, that I love it and I'll invest in it to really truly get it. But listening through it a couple of times, I found myself more interested in it than I probably uh, would have thought I'd be. Andy, what'd you think about them bringing back older tunes? Like true love weights has been around. I mean, that's, I think that's been a demo since like the mid nineties that people have heard. And, and some of these other songs have it, uh, burn the witch which was the first single has been around since the early 2000s in, and obviously these things have evolved but do you like it when a band like this you know continues to work on material that's been around for so long or, or that you know you might have heard already or are you you know more interested in the newer material I would normally frown upon that, um, but I'm not the kind of guy for Radiohead where I've heard every live song. I've heard every little demo and that. So most of this was new to me. True Love Waits is the one exception. I've, I had heard that, and I thought this was a killer version of it. But, uh, yeah, Gone are the is the complete surprise of when you opened up Kid A and you're, you, what you were expecting was completely not there. This is kind of what I expected from Radiohead in 2016. And that's a good and a bad thing. But, yeah, Burn the Witch, I think that just is hypnotizing. And I think it's one of the strongest, if you can call it rock, rock singles of the year. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of other stuff that isn't completely, uh, you know, instant for you, but is a, it's a grower like most of their stuff was. But, yeah, it, Gone is the huge surprise of when you got OK Computer and you were expecting the Benz 2 and they completely delivered something else. And um, I don't know if we'll ever be surprised by Radiohead. Maybe if they just got five guys in a room with guitars, I think that would be the most shocking thing they could do for us for maybe their next move. Who yeah, knows? probably. Wouldn't that be novel? Do, I was listening to, uh, I can't remember what it was. It was uh, another podcast. But anyway, they were uh, almost assuming this might be the end of the band. Did you, have you guys heard that? or hmm. is there I, any don't, I don't know that there'll ever be an end to them because they all can do whatever they want outside of the band. You know, Tom York does solo albums and he does the stuff, the Adams for Peace stuff with Nigel Goodrich and... Um, Johnny Greenwood scores films. Phil Selway does solo albums. Like, there's no reason for them, unless they really hate each other, which I don't get the feeling that they do. They can pretty much just do Radiohead whenever they want, whether they when they when they feel like getting together, as opposed to it being a full time job. Well, it could be something where do that particular group of people feel like they have something to say at this point together right or do I mean, they only if it or, went, or do they only have things to say individually if they went 10 years without releasing a record i would not be surprised or they could put out a record next year like there's to me there's no timetable with a radiohead out album anymore yeah. and it's surprising to me that it's still the five original members too yeah and Nigel Godrich, pretty interesting, uh, you know storyline for him and i it's going to be weird to hear him on a chili peppers album next month He's mixing and producing that with Danger Mouse. So I don't know what to expect with that. But maybe it's because of the Adams for Peace with the Flea. You know, yeah, probably. Yeah. So Hopefully. where would you place this in their overall discography? Uh, they've got nine albums. Is this top three? Is this more middle of the road, like four through 
six or is this at the bottom seven through nine? I would say middle of the road only because it's Radiohead and you have OK Computer, The Benz and Kid A and Pablo Honey. It's better than King of Limbs. I think it's better than In Rainbows, but that was strong, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really hard to say. So maybe it's towards the bottom for Radiohead now that I think of it. But uh, you got, got a lot of the thief and MDF you got a lot of competition. And, yeah. yeah. So it's it's tough. But maybe, as I said, it's a grower. So who knows? Yeah. All right. Andy, we want to thank you for uh, doing these rapid reviews for us. People can go to Andy Dare. Is it AndyDare.com? Yep, just AndyDare.com. I've got uh, articles I've written for Chicagoist. I've got a podcast weekly, and I got a little network with Jesse, Billy Corgan's brothers, doing a show. I've got a guy in Staten Island, a guy in L.A., and, uh, yeah, my show every Saturday, The Andy Dare Show. Excellent. Thanks, Andy. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.